0: podcast, Nathan Furr talks about leading transformation through disruptive times, so stay tuned. Welcome everyone to the Future of Data podcast. Uh, Today we have with us Nathan Furr, Um, a brief bio on Nathan. So Nathan is a professor of strategy and innovation at NCA in Paris and a recognized expert in the field of innovation technology strategy. He has multiple books and articles published by outlets such as Harvard Business Review and MIT Sloan Management Review, including his most uh, recent best-selling book, The Innovator's Method, published by Harvard Business Review, which won um, multiple awards from the business press. He has two forthcoming books from Harvard Business Review, Press uh, addressing how companies lead transformation and how innovators win support for their ideas. Uh, Professor Fur has worked with leading companies to study and implement innovation strategies, uh, including Google, Amazon, Citi, Deutsche Bank, Philips, Kimberly-Clark, Solway, and others. Professor Furr uh, earned his PhD from Stanford Technological, Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University. With that, uh, Nathan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me
0: interesting so why don't we go over um, your journey like what brought you to this point and and uh, what brought you to this um researching around this wonderful world of transformation and innovation like well, if you can give us some backstory yes
1: yeah so backstory is um i believe we live in a world where technology has lowered the barriers for people to participate to create And magnified the impact of those creations and their communications and and that has created a lot of uncertainty so that you know established companies individuals are feeling a lot of uncertainty in the world around them and and I my theory is that we need to develop the theories frameworks and tools to help us navigate that world of uncertainty because as human beings uncertainty can paralyze us but the other side of uncertainty is that there's a lot of possibility so while on the one hand we feel like gosh the world's changing fast there's so many new technologies or new companies or new things coming at me making it uncertain it's it it only feels that way because there are so many opportunities to take advantage of and so many opportunities to create so all of my work is around this question how do we navigate uncertainty And, and the first kind of block of work that i did was on innovation how do you generate new ideas? That was in a book called The Innovator's DNA. What do you do with those ideas? That's in a book called uh, The Innovator's Method, which you mentioned. Um, and then, you know, lastly, in established companies, how do we create a culture of innovation? And that's in some Harvard Business Review articles and some future work that I'm doing. But as part of that, I also am really curious about, well, you know, one of the things I don't think that is answered well is how do you as an organization or an individual, how do you, how do you make a long leap? You know, so we've got a lot of great innovation frameworks out there, like lean startup, design thinking, agile, all of which I've written about. But I'm not sure that like lean startup or a- a design thinking is really going to produce the next SpaceX. Mm-hmm. And so I got curious about how do we make long leaps, and and that really what is what led to this most recent book, Leading Transformation, which is where we're really applying these kind of cognitive sciences, these behavioral tools to the innovation and change space. And then uh, you mentioned another book coming out uh, next year, uh, actually, it is next year, 2019, (laughs) but this coming summer, uh, called Innovation Capital, which is how do we win the resources and support for innovation. So on the surface, it looks like all the pieces may be disconnected. Uh, Nathan's doing innovation here. He's doing technology strategy here. He's doing, you know, kind of, transformation over here but all of it is uh i just want to figure out how do we have, how do we take advantage of the world we live in rather than be afraid of it
0: interesting um beautiful topic and and before we jump into the the your journey in transformation and and what 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 your findings are why don't you talk us through your current uh your, your job like what what's your day-to-day look like like what how do you spend your day
1: so I, I'm a professor of strategy at INSEAD. INSEAD, for those who aren't familiar, is seen as kind of the the, the, the big, uh, you know, kind of number one global business school. So we really emphasize being international, and we have campuses in France, Singapore, Abu Dhabi, and then we are opening learning garages in other geographies. Um, shortly, you'll you'll hear about. So we really try to understand um, business innovation from, from a global perspective. So my, I'm a research professor. So my primary job is to do research and I do research in many different ways, but I'm, but I'm always trying to kind of, uh, you know, get inside of companies, understand what's going on, uh, recognize the patterns and then share those patterns. And I would say, you know, about 70% of my time is doing, is doing that research and writing it up. So I have you know, about seven articles in Harvard Business Review in the last few years, but also many academic articles that maybe, maybe my academic colleagues would care a little bit more about, given their specificity. But about 30% of my time is going around, giving keynotes, teaching. Um, but I'd say, yeah, my, most of my work is researching and trying to understand why did something happen that way? And then explaining those patterns.
0: Interesting. And now let's let's um, um, dig into the, this area of transformation, right? And and uh, before you like, what is that pivotal moment um, in your journey that you said, okay, I need to write write about this particular topic, and and this is yeah. this is really getting out of hand. So if you can walk us through that,
1: yeah, that's uh, it's a great way to ask the question, by the way, because it's Vishal. It's really kind of how I got there. Um, so I mentioned to you that I did a lot of work on innovation process. So mm-hmm. the big kind of first innovation work I did was about what are the b- behaviors of people who are able to come up with new ideas. And that mm-hmm. resulted in this book, The Innovator's DNA. What we really we unpacked there are these five core behaviors that that enhance your creativity and that creativity isn't just something genetic, that you're mm-hmm. born creative or not, it's actually you look at these great innovators, they engage in these behaviors and the behaviors are associating, putting different things together, questioning the status quo, observing the world around them, being willing to experiment. And then lastly, networking with people different than them for new ideas. And, and when I finished that work, I was like, okay, great. So we've got a handle on how do we get new ideas, but how do we turn those ideas into new businesses and and while I was at Stanford I was really fortunate to be in the right place at the right time so I got deeply involved in what became known as the lean startup movement I wrote uh, one of the early books in that movement called nail it then scale it and it was you know the entrepreneur's guide to Mm -hmm. creating breakthrough innovation and I was just trying to make those tools accessible to people but I was also kind of deeply interested in the design thinking movement, which was really taking off at Stanford then as well. And as I, as I started to wrestle with like, gosh, these are similar. And then I looked over in computer science and I could see they were rejecting, you know, old waterfall methodologies in favor of agile development. And, and I could see, you know, the business model innovation kind of movement taking off. I said, is it possible? Why are all these frameworks popping up at the exact same time? And, um, and, and my hypothesis is that, that they were all, they're like the proverb of the blind people feeling different parts of the elephant, that they're all attempts to describe the innovate, different aspects of the innovation process. So then what I did is I said, well, what do, if we synthesize those, what does that tell us in common about the innovation process? Number one. And number two, these tools are being used often by startups, but how can big companies use them? And what can we learn from big companies who have adopted these practices about how to use them in a corporate setting? And that resulted in the innovator's in the, in the innovators method. And from there, so it was about the process of turning your ideas into something real. From there, I, I kind of had a couple threads I wanted to go on. One was, I knew you needed to create a cultural context for innovation to happen in established companies. And I wrote a few articles about that, but that'll probably be a a, a separate book, but as i but, as I hinted at my earlier comments, I really, as I saw entrepreneurs using lean startup, as I saw big companies using it, as I saw them doing design thinking at the same time, you know, I was getting the interview like Elon Musk and jeff Bezos and and I, I, I was really kind of struck by Elon Musk, and I was kind of you know saying, is lean startup really gonna get us to those mm-hmm. those next big leaps? and that's when I ran into my co-author on leading transformation and he told me a story. If it's okay, I'd love to share the story with you that really kind of shocked me. Is it cool if I share the story?
0: Yeah. Yes, let's go
1: Okay. So here's the story he told me. He told me about a big fortune 50 company. That's a retailer that's in very typical in the, in that in 2012, they were in a very typical position. They're big, successful, profitable, not a lot of room for growth. They're a public company, so they have a lot of scrutiny. Mm. It was like a perfect storm for the kind of company that you'd say, oh, they're going to talk about innovation. They're going to talk about doing something new, but nothing's going to change. Because they have all those... have all those pressures you know it's hard to change if you're being successful it's Mm -hmm. hard to change if you're kind of at the top of the game it's hard to change if you're public and you've got all that scrutiny of shareholders looking at everything you're doing so that's in 2012 fast forward to today and they have put they have helped to put the first store in space on the International Space Station they have robots and stores taking inventory They're building exosuits, external robotic skeletons that help workers to lift heavier objects and do it safely. They built with partners one of the first augmented reality phones and sold it in a do-it-yourself retail store for $500 and sold out in three and a half days. They built some of the the only uh, 3D imaging and printing services that have actually been profitable and valuable I mean they really did some radical and transformational things the company went from being off the map in terms of innovation to being you know having a massive reputation for innovation which is you know a, it has a, a lot of value I can't share the exact numbers with uh, publicly but there's a lot of monetary value there's a lot of you know recruitment value in that so something pretty radical happened inside this company and 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 so that's when you know i was like okay this might have mm. something in there about how do we make these long leaps and then as i my co-authors and i started to move forward we began to apply the same tools in other contexts and and we began to say wow there's really something here now we had planned being you know the academic that i am i had planned I'm going to launch a you know 20-year research agenda to prove uh, mm. everything and dot every I and dot every T. And what we came to realize is, no, we need to kind of tell this story, get these tools out there, and get others contributing to the development of this this approach rather than kind of hold it in our box for 20 years and then kind of, you know, tell people when the cake is fully baked. So we wanted... So the book is really about kind of telling the tools we used in this big retailer, but also not just, you know, the company with Lowe's, not just Lowe's, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, we used them with partners, with Google, with, you know, Pepsi, with a bunch of other companies, um, some of which we have to still keep unnamed and seeing some pretty, pretty
0: remarkable stuff happen. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair. Fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website, firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Very, really useful. And I think one thing that, that, that we see a lot um, that I'm sure you have a better vantage point on is some of the companies are like 100, 200 years old legacy companies they have built their culture solidified it to to the point that it's really really unnerving to see them with this this new new sort of mechanics of working today and and now yeah. they are asked to transform and it's yeah. many of them are uh too little too late or many of them are maybe too too early and too fast it's it's that that slider of when to move and, and when to transform it's it's anyone's guess uh, when, when you talk to these leaders uh, in, in those companies. Right. And when you were doing your research from your vantage point, like what has been some of your uh, unraveling on, on sort of some of the areas where you say, hey, maybe these are certain signs that you should be, you should be monitoring that, hey, okay, this is the time to, for me to evolve. And what have you found out on, in, in your research?
1: Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty um, interesting question. When is the right mm-hmm. time? Um you know, I guess it depends how you view transformation, right? if you mm-hmm. could view transformation as something that is driven by some external force, this is kind of the narrative or the story behind disruptive innovation mm-hmm. that some external technology comes in, some set of competitors using that technology uh wrapped in a new business model, kind of force you to adapt and and that is. Definitely, one of the ways in which transformation is demanded. Um, but but there's other ways in which transformation is demanded, which I would say maybe characterizes the majority of companies, which is they have the opportunity to be better than they are. Um, so, for example, like for example, at Insiad, I teach, I created and teach the flagship course on leading digital transformation. So, not, I'm not talking about the book here. I'm just talking about digital transformation. One of the kind of things that I sometimes have to do for my participants is help them see that yes, there are a, there's a subset of companies for which digital transformation means it's kind of this you know disruptive exiting the old business, entering a new business kind of thing. But for the vast majority of customers. Digital transformation is about how do I use digital tools to serve my customers better uh, Mm -hmm. than I did in the past and 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 that of course can mean you're gonna cross internal organizational boundaries and you need to rethink about the way you use technology, but one of the great examples of this you know, one of the case studies we have is how Aeroflot Went from being one of the worst airlines in the world Mm. to being one of the best airlines in the world in terms of their efficiency, in terms of how customers feel about them, winning tons of, you know, customer awards. And it was all about digital transformation, but that digital transformation was just using data, using digital tools, uh, to do what they already do, which is Mm. fly people from point A to point B, but do it far better using a set of digital tools. And and then they could use that, you know, they created this back-end architecture that allowed them to automate how they gather data from all of their equipment and their staff that allowed them to do some pretty, to be honest with you, kind of simple things on the front end, you know, mobile applications, tablets for flight crews that have all the data about the passengers and, and other flights, you know, di- everything for the pilot done electronically. I mean, this isn't like magical stuff. It's not like they, you know, kind of reinvented something, you know, new to the world, but, but that allowed them to do that core customer job so much better than they had in the past. And so to me, when I, now I want to bring it out of the digital transformation piece I was talking about to transformation more generally. To me, transformation is about breaking through the status quo that you're living in as an individual or a company to see what else could be possible for you and get there. Now, for this big hardware retailer, the story I told you, this was, for them, it was about realizing how they could use a bunch of technologies that were available. And you might think it's a story about using technology, but it's not Mm. that at all. What it was really about is their fundamental shift in mindset from what we do is we sell paint and nails and and hammers from that to, you know what we do? We help people envision what they could, what their homes could be. And so that means we do all kinds of other stuff. And this is something the automobile companies, you know, when you talk to the big automobile companies, they've gone through a pretty fundamental, many of them have gone through a fundamental change in identity from what we do is we make cars to we're actually, what we do is we do mobility. And when you see it that way, you see, oh, we could do all these other things. And so, and and likewise, when we worked with Pepsi, when my co-author worked with Pepsi, there was no technology involved there at all. There's no robots, no exosuits, none of that. But what what we did with them helped them see what they're really doing for customers in a new way. And so in the book, we talk about organizations, but at the end, we also talk about how this applies to individuals. So I want to make sure I insert that now. Hmm. I would say everything we talk in the book is also about for me, for you, for every one of us to see beyond the status quo of our lives as they are right now to ask, gosh, what are the other possible futures out there and how do I get there? So that's the fundamental question to me of leading transformations, being able to see what could be and then being able to take some action towards that and then break through the things that will inevitably hold you back as an individual organization from getting there.
0: Interesting. Very good point, and I think one thing that that I want your perspective on. So um, I, I I remember talking to a bunch of uh, Blackberries uh, product managers during its sort of um, down spiral, and and also one one of the other store that went bankrupt. Um, talking to their product managers, and they were all they were all sort of telling me a different story. They say, "Hey, Vishal, we were hitting all our numbers like so, and right now yeah. many of these businesses are." Very data-centric business, right? So they are relying on data for understanding what's going on, what are said sentiments. But the market landscape is itself shifting, right? And they are relying Hmm. on their insights and their capabilities and their sort of infrastructure that will help them to learn. Now, this is almost the outcry for many of the businesses out there today, right? So they are just sliding through it, and, and that's why we realize that uh, at least the data is not telling them, telling them the real story. In fact, one of the uh, another interesting uh, experience that I had was an apparel manufacturer said, Vishal, you know what? I don't believe in my data. I go out and see how people actually experience this product. And he they were his, his, his into shoemaking and say, I actually observe kids in playing uh, fields to see how they're actually using my product, how actually they're giving experience with that, right? So, to, but that's a very radical idea right from from transformational perspective it's not a very incremental in its nature so what are some of your thoughts on what are some of the some of the early signs that should alarm me that i need to transform or it's it's going to be too late like have you given any much thought into into that area we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website FirstFridayFair.Tao.AI, and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: Hmm. So, I mean, so by the way, it's funny that you mentioned this story about the data. I won't give you the story because story is one of the fundamental principles we talk uh-huh. about. I mean, data is uh, is wonderful and it's powerful, but my guess is very few people. Um, you know, sit down on the weekend, Mm. uh, and on their couch to read through a stack of data or Mm. that they really go to work fundamentally because of the data. We, we do things because we believe in them, we believe that there's something there, that there's some value that we add or there's, or there's something else we're other purpose we're living our life for. And then we go to work to, to serve that purpose. And so, you know, you ask about, you know, how, how do we know if it's too late to transform? I mean, gosh, I mean, I, I, yeah, there absolutely are businesses that, that that get get kind of late in the game. But I, I guess what I would say is, I, I think we always want to be in this world that's changing very fast, asking ourselves mm. the question, what direction do we want to go? What direction should we be mm. going? And and the whole idea behind leading transformation was. That yeah, there's a lot of work out there on transformation. There's a lot of work out there on change. There's a mm-hmm. lot of work out there on innovation. All of which is it's great work, you know. But at the end of the day, it is always the same human obstacles that hold us back from making change. It's mm-hmm. the inability to see that we need to change, mm-hmm. or, or what the changes could be. So we, you know, we'll, we'll bucket that into incremental thinking. It's the habits and routines that reinforce the way we do things today. And it's third, the fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And so all we were trying to do, so, um, you know, my co-author and I come out of, uh, my co-author comes out of a behavioral science background. I come out of an organization theory and social psychology background. My third co-author is an applied neuroscientist. What we said is, gosh, what if we could take, all these decades of cognitive science, and apply it to the innovation and change process. What,
0: mm.
1: what kind of tools would we learn we could apply? And, and what, we, what we came up with, what we describe in the book is three core activities, and some tools to help you with those activities. And, and the three core activities are built around those human limitations, again. I can't see that I need to change. Mm-hmm. My habits hold me back from change. And ultimately, although I may talk about change, when it comes time to move, I'm afraid to do it. And this mm-hmm. is true for organizations and it's true for individuals. And big organizations, you know, they may talk a big game about change, but when it comes time to change, they get stuck in their habits and they're really afraid of rocking the boat of what they're already doing. So that's. You know, as far as, like, when to change, um, you know, I would say, again, everything, the problem is because I'm a professor, I know context matters so much. Mm -hmm. And so I'm anxious to give you like a hard and fast rule. But I will say, you know, if the change is being driven by some external technology transformation, there is always some timing element to be aware of. And while the clay Christians and disruptive innovation story is that firms move too late. There's another side of that coin, which is sometimes mm. firms move too early. And mm. so where what I'm talking about in my work around transformation, it's it's less about the technology, it's more about what do we really do for customers. And mm. if that is your compass, you're more likely you're more likely to succeed. So anyway.
0: Interesting. So, um, on storytelling, I, I was reading in in, in your book that uh, you put a lot of emphasis on comic, using a comic, um, books to share transformation stories. What What's that? What, like, it's 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 brilliant, by the way. But what what brought it to to that?
1: Yeah. Okay. So it's true, by the way. I you know I told this story, this before and after you know, this company made this radical change. And you say, well, how did they make this radical change? Well, Hmm. some kind of unusual sounding things happened inside that company. So what we did is we took, uh, my co-author took all the data they had about customer trends, technology trends, Hmm. and they gave it to a panel of science fiction writers. (laughs) And they then have those science fiction, I know it sounds crazy, those panel of science fiction writers write stories about what the future could look like in five, 10 years Mm. for the company. Then we synthesize those stories into a single narrative. We then captured that narrative in a comic book, and like a graphic novel comic book, and gave that to the senior executives, including the CEO who, the CEO at the time was an accountant by training. We don't normally think of, the accountants as being the ones who Mm. will be the most friendly to getting a comic book and a senior executive meeting. (laughs) It was definitely a a frightening moment. And then we um, did a bunch of other things, the most visible of which was we used applied neuroscience to, you know, we literally put high-resolution EEG headsets on the heads of customers and executives to help guide us about where they were getting stuck on the story. As we started to prototype where they're getting stuck on the prototypes. And and when I tell the story that way, it seems like, whoa, cool story, Nathan. But I don't see how science fiction, comic books, and neuroscience mm. is something I could use. But if I can, if I can go under the hood of what's going on there, you'll actually could see how this is extremely relevant. So remember, I talked about the three again, if you go talk to the behavioral economists about what are all mm. the ways in which our actions and decision-making get misshaped. You could get a list of a 1,000 biases almost. Mm -hmm. What we do is we bucket those into three categories that affect transformation. Again, getting stuck in the status quo, habits and routines, habits slash routines, and number three, fear of the unknown. And what we do is we just, we develop, we we redevelop some old tools uh, and we develop some new tools to address those three things. And the first thing, people wrestle with is they get stuck in the status quo. They have a hard time seeing what else mm. is possible and then believe and then believing they could change it. And so what we all that science fiction and stories and comic books, all that was about is this idea that our oldest tools, human doing, is stories, mm. stories about heroes who, who do something great and change the world. I mean, that's what you'll sit down on the weekend on your couch to. Read. Mm. And that's what will motivate you to change the world. And so although we use the term story in business all the time, we don't actually use story in business. Well, we, when we say story, it's usually like a chronological order of events or it's some kind of manipulative persuasion. It's that story with characters, conflict and resolution. So what we were, what my co-author was doing at Lowe's mm. is he was, he was he, he crafted a, he, with the science fiction writers and with the comics and all that. All he was doing is finding a way to craft a story, and in that story, the character, the hero, is the is the customer, and the customer mm-hmm. has a dilemma, has a challenge they have to overcome, and then the company and the technology help them do that. and And so, in one of the earliest stories, there. If you actually look at customers, one of the hardest time, one of the biggest things people struggle with, in terms of you know the whole home improvement, is to to actually visualize what changes they could make and communicate that. So, in the story back in 2012, you know before Oculus Rift, which is the big Mm -hmm. virtual reality Mm -hmm. company Facebook bought for two billion dollars, before Oculus Rift even existed, we had a story about how. How regular people could use, like, mixed reality, so augmented and virtual mm. reality, to envision a home remodel and then communicate it to the people who would help them do that. And we 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 told that story. See, when it, and then we like refined that story. We actually, you know, my my co-author told it, created this comic book to tell the story. It told the story of this young couple who, you know had bought this old house and they loved it. It had this great history an old, you know, you know, you know, veteran had built it with his own hands, but now it was breaking down and how did they create this space for the new family they want to create as a couple. And, and then, you know, this technology helps them do that. Mm-hmm. And then the company helps them do that. And, and when, when the executives read that they were like, whoa, you know, it shifted them from, mm. yeah, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality. We don't really do that stuff. We're a retailer. We don't really, you know, we can't do that. We're not, we're a tech company. Mm. It shifted them from that space of disbelief to a space of, oh my gosh, we have to be a part of this. How do we do this? And, it's a pretty um, cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty, and, and now lots of people are doing it, but these guys have been doing it for years, you know? <laughs> and and so, and so it's the story that helps you su- See what could be and suspend your disbelief. And we just, yeah, we used a comic book at Lowe's. Mm. We've used other formats, you know. So uh, my co authors were trying to help the United Nations effort for sustainable development goals. And um, mm. there was a bunch, of, and there were some others involved in their Unreasonable Group and others. Anyway, they were trying to help these entrepreneurs, trying to solve the world's problems. And these entrepreneurs would be pitching. And, you know, it was kind of like, they were good people doing good things, but, but it just wasn't really, the magic wasn't clicking with like the investors and the entrepreneurs. Mm. And, and so one of the things we did is we said, well, let's pair these entrepreneurs with people who are good at telling stories. And you know what? Mm. Rappers are good at telling stories. And so we paired them with rappers and we like the rappers Mm. told the story about the sustainable development goal. And it had a massive impact on the audience I mean when you have this like really good rapper talking about how many of the people in the world live without power and how unjust mm. it is and how we have to change it. Like suddenly people are like, I mean, they were sharing these songs on Twitter, even though they weren't supposed to leak them out, they were tweeting about mm. it and they were sharing them. And, and suddenly people are like motivated, like, yeah, we've got to change this. and And that's mm. just story in a different medium. So the comic books was trying to get people out of, you know, the PowerPoint doldrums that we all live in, in big companies, and and tell a story in another
0: new and powerful. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. No, I think that's, that's a brilliant idea. So, um, now let's talk about leading transformation. Right? Let's from the from the leadership vantage point. From your perspective, uh, from your vantage point, who where should it start? Like, if you look at an organization, who is most responsible, or who should be most responsible uh, for trans, transformation in 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 any corporation or in in, in any enterprise? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think
1: most people would tell you that the CEO. Is uh, most responsible. Um, But the truth is, it doesn't always happen that way. I mean, sure, it's great when you have your CEO on board and they're leading it. um, But, you know, one of the big transformation principles to me is that, you know, we all want what I would call capital T transformation. We all kind of want to, you know, I say we're going to make this big change, and tomorrow morning when I wake up and I show up at work, the whole world's changed. It's amazing, but transformation rarely and never really happens. Maybe it's very rarely happens like that. Yeah. If there are exceptions, often transformation happens through what we'll call a bunch of little t transformations. And I think one of the things that's really empowering about the story we tell in the book is that when my co-author was at Lowe's and he started this, he was not. A senior executive. He was a junior researcher in the money losing international division of the company, leading a mm-hmm. total team of like himself, you know? And uh, so he's in a very low power position. And, and so I think an empowering message is you can be in a low power position and you can lead change now. And, but again, through a bunch of little T transformations. And, mm-hmm. and so yes, it, It'd be great if the CEO always led it, but it's not always true. And I mean, we have some very famous stories of this, by the way. You know, many, mm. we, we all respect Intel now as being kind of king of the microprocessor industry, mm. but we forget the narrative that they, or uh, they, there's a world where Intel would have gone out of business. Well, they were a memory company in the early days, not a microprocessor company. They mm-hmm. defined themselves as memory. The senior leaders were saying, we're a memory company. Um, but they had this simple rule inside the organization that the middle of the organization leveraged, which was you allocate space in the fab based on profit per wafer. And what happened is these, these, uh, these customers started coming to them and saying, could you mm-hmm. combine these different functions into one chip? So it was like a proto- prototype. Um, microprocessor and they'd be like, yeah, we could do that but it'll cost you a bunch of money and, and the customers were like, great, do it and, and so that started to happen more and more and more where these mm. customers were coming and asking to build what were effectively these early microprocessors and and it was, they, these middle managers were allocating fab space to it because they were, that's where they made the money meanwhile, top leaders were saying we're a memory mm. company, we're a memory company it wasn't until mm. I think it was either half their revenues or half their profits, or some you know some gargantuan amount of money mm. was coming from microprocessors that the senior leaders looked down and said, "Wait a minute, mm. we're not really making memory; we're making microprocessors." And then they changed their story, and it's like, "Well, we're a microprocessor company now." And they reallocated that direction, but I mean that's a transformation that happened from within, and and I think you know I think a lot of transformation. You know, comes from bottom up, and 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 in, in my world, by the way, as a strategy professor, we very clearly acknowledge what we call top down mm. and bottom up, or emergent innovation and strategy. It can come from both places, and and in our book, Leading Transformation, it's, we've written it so that either audience can take care ha- a handle on it. But really, I think mostly we've written it for for you know, people like me who are you know, I'm not the dean of INSEAD, you know, I'm not the, you know, that's the equivalent of the CEO of INSEAD. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. a professor, and I believe I can lead just as much transformation as, as the dean can. And I would say, you know, we've written it for people in organizations who want to transform their organizations or transform their, I mean, I, I personally believe the next step forward for us is uh, talking about its personal applications.
0: Interesting. And say, so if, if I'm, um, um, leader in an organization and i'm looking for say transformational agents who actually would help me in this in, in this journey from your vantage point and and from your analysis what is um the ideal recipe of a good transformational leader like what what would they, what should what are the qualities that they should possess so so we can identify them somehow in in the mix yeah um well maybe
1: i can answer it this way so in the book, we talk about these three steps, strategic narrative, breaking decision bottlenecks, and then using KPIs of the future to navigate the unknown. Um, and after that, we talk about, well, how, how do you kind of get a team around you to help you? Excuse me. And and one of the things, we talk about a couple ideas of who that team is that could help you. One of the ideas we talk about is um, you want to find chaos pilots. So chaos pilots are people who are capable of navigating the uncertainty in the world uh, that's involved in transformation and um, that, that that they're capable of kind of structuring that. Cause a lot of people will be like, yeah, I want to be involved in new things, but then they like, they really need you to lay out the mm. you know, the map for you. So we talk about what are the characteristics of chaos pilots and they're People who are com- comfortable in ambiguity they're mm. capable of structuring that ambiguity they're willing mm. to take steps forward proactively on their own and they're often you know willing to be naysayers of kind of dominant uh, corporate paradigms so they'll like you know, I think this is critical, and we need to do this anyway, even though those around mm. me are saying, "Oh, don't stick your head up, that'll mm. hurt your career or something like that so we we kind of go through in the chaos pilot section who what are some of these characteristics of people and and where to look for them and it's even sometimes where to look for them is kind of a surprising thing they they may not necessarily be the people who get the highest performance evaluations they may you know in fact you almost want to look for a little bit of paradox in their performance evaluation. So sometimes their performance evaluation, you know, they're kept right at the center of the organization, but they don't have the highest performance evaluation. You're like, why, why is everybody keeping them around? But it's not the highest performance eval. And you'll look at their performance evals and they'll say things like really amazing delivers all the time, but you know, always challenging, you know, challenging us. And I'm like, wow, that's, That's great. That's the kind of chaos pilot you want to look for. You know, another quality you want to look for is um, actually something I, I, you know, I I kind of think is quite interesting. Mm. It's a quality that um, actually the English poet uh, Keats called negative capability, which sounds like a negative thing, but it's actually quite positive. It's the ability to endure uncertainty without having to prematurely seek a solution. So in a world of uncertainty, it's, it's, you know, humans, our brains are wired to hate uncertainty, but, and so what we want to do sometimes is we want to like take that option that's right in front of us right away or or close it down and have a conclusion because that, that conclusion makes us feel more at ease. Like, Oh, there's, you know, I figured it out, but, but the people who are really good at creating the future are, are actually able to endure the fact that I don't have a resolution quite yet. And I may not mm-hmm. know exactly where I'm going with this, but I'm going to follow the trail a bit longer before I have to shut it down prematurely. And so that's, you know, you know, maybe if I were to rename it for today, I would call it uncertainty capability. But it's mm-hmm. that ability to kind inter- in, of you know, entertain without having to like, finish it today and, and that's another quality i would look for to kind of be have somebody on your team
0: interesting no i think uh, uh, thank you so much for sharing that now we're at the tail end of the conversation and i want to spend a few minutes on your journey I guess. so uh, and we ask all of our guests to share uh, if we if we ask you to attribute three qualities that has really helped you be what you are today what would those three qualities be like what would you what would you attribute yourself like three qualities to huh
1: pretty fascinating um one so number one i i like everybody else take great comfort in following rules and following the path that others have set out before me but I always challenge it and question it. So mm-hmm. I so I just want to acknowledge, you know, so what I would say number one is um, challenge the fundamental assumptions and rules of the game you play. And all I'm mm-hmm. trying to do with my preface was acknowledge that that's not an easy thing to do. That mm-hmm. I personally, even though I challenge that, I struggle. So, for example, as a professor, this may surprise you, I am not rewarded for. Uh, I, let me say, I'm rarely rewarded for doing the kind of work I do that has an impact on practice. So, all the HBR articles, the books from Harvard Business Review Press, mm. many, most universities would prefer that all I did was publish the academic publications.
0: Mm. But I
1: feel like I fundamentally like have to say answer questions that are critical to managers, to leaders, to individuals, and I have to share that message. And so I've broken the rules of my profession, and that's not always an easy thing to do. I mean, that comes with punishments mm-hmm. and rewards, but at the mm-hmm. core, I believe in challenging the fundamental rules and assumptions by which we, by, by which we live. And I would say, mm-hmm. you know, my favorite rules to break are the ones that we take for granted the most about the way you have to do things. And so I always, I I love like saying, gosh, is that the only way to do it? Could you do it another Mm -hmm. way? Even sometimes little simple rules about how to do things. So number one, I always want to challenge the taken for granted rules and assumptions. I I would say number one, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, Mm -hmm. number two, I would say um, being really, I mean, See, I feel like passion is an overused term. Mm. And so it's not so much passionate about something. It's about being, I would almost say, earnest in mm. what you're going after. So find something you care about that, and, and be earnest in chasing it. Do that thing for the thing. So I want to answer the question of how do we manage uncertainty? And I will go down different paths to find it, and I will... You know, and I'll, and I'll, you know, so so there's a there's a there's a real desire to know. So I Mm. would say be earnest and do the thing because it's a thing worth doing well. And sometimes Mm. I do, I have to do dumb things in my Mm. career. Every career, every job has Mm. dumb things you have to do. Do it well because it because and and enjoy the doing of it, and not be so obsessed about what the Mm. end would be. And the third quality I would say is persist, you know, persist. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I, I interview people uh, all the time about how do you manage uncertainty? And it, one of my recent interviews with an actor struck me. He said, you know what, for every job I get, I probably threw out a hundred different feelers, whether that be, mm-hmm. you know, he sends out his packet or he does an audition or whatever. And, and that just struck me. I mean, how many of us would try two times get mm-hmm. nothing and be like, Oh, I must not do this. The guy mm. is so persistent, and you know what i'm persistent too i mm. I keep working so uh, you know again I, I would say break rules, be earnest, and be persistent
0: beautiful and um thank you so much for sharing that it's it's it's, it's, it's a treat and now let's let's talk about um we ask all of our guests to share their favorite reads um Ooh. so do you have some favorite read that you could share with our listeners and viewers yes yeah.
1: So, um, I'm, I'm a broad individual and I, and I think innovators, uh, if you look, for example, at Nobel prize winners, they often do things outside their field in which they won their Nobel prize. And I'm like that. Um, I, for example, I, I love to read literature, uh, literature from many cultures. And so while I could give you a, a business or a technology book, I'm actually going to give you a book that's none of those. Um, I would say my favorite book right now is, uh, steinbeck's john steinbeck's east of eden um it's Mm. a book that's set in the west and the emergence of the west but it's really about the dilemma that we live in a world with a lot of evil and there's good Mm. but there's a lot of evil and we're each you know that evil comes from within each of us and we're each torn in this battle between good and evil but the message in east of Eden* which is told so beautifully, I would encourage you to read each of it, each of you to read it. The message that he tells is that mm. we get to choose. We mm. get to choose. Every mm. one of us gets to choose. And although we are each a mix of good and bad, and sometimes we feel the bad forces pulling on us, it's always up to us. And I think that has broad implications beyond mm. you know, this literary novel. If we think about the world we're living in today and we think about technology, we are on a threshold of what technology can do for good and also for evil. And we get to choose. And these has huge societal implications. I mean, you look at Facebook today, you look at Google today, you're seeing mm-hmm. that, especially with Facebook, some of the choices they make about how to monetize and and the, mm. and the algorithms that shape the way that, uh, data and news, uh, gets disseminated. We all, we all have to make choices, uh, mm. in, in a world of technology going forward. And so I'm a big believer that we can take that technology, we can take those tools for transformation, we can take these and we can make great futures and we can choose that. And, and Beautiful. so that's my hope.
0: Thank you so much. And, and now let's, uh, the last question uh, for the session. And um, so if you want our listeners and viewers to take away something from the conversation, like what would that be? What would be your parting thought to our listeners and viewers?
1: Mm. Uh, my parting thought would be that transformation is possible at an individual and organizational level. It begins by seeing A bigger future, a bigger opportunity for our organizations or for us as individuals. And then laying out what we talk about in the book is the artifact trail, which is the set of small steps, actions, observable wins, artifacts that we could start taking today that would lead to that future. And mm-hmm. what you got to do is you have to craft that story that you can believe in or your organization can believe in. You have to find what are the bottlenecks that are holding back some action and then see how to break through them and then start marching down that artifact trail so that you start getting that data and feedback about things are really changing. And that you can use that to begin transformation. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to end up, you know, like I said, tomorrow morning, you open the door and the whole world's changed. But if you can change your trajectory 3% over many months, that adds up to a big change. Mm. And I, you know, I've seen enough organizations and I've seen enough individuals who have, they, they allow themselves to ask those questions about what's the bigger future to tell a story that's really meaningful and to start Mm. taking actions. And you know what? Six months later, they're not in that radical new future that they envisioned at the end of their story, but they're in a different future than the one they would have been at had they not changed trajectories. And I think that's I think that's that, that's an, an amazing that the world is full of possibilities. And you know, one of the authors I really admire who passed away a few years ago, he said, you know, listen, facts are are just possibilities that that came to be mm. and i would say there is mm. no future out there you can't nobody can predict the future for you because mm. the future does not exist as an objective reality there is only the future that we create with our actions so my parting thought would be you, you create that future with your actions
0: Beautifully said, Nathan. And, and with that, thank you so much um, for, for, for sitting with us and explaining the journey of uh, leading transformation. Love to have you back in your next book when your next book comes out. Um, for our listeners and viewers, we'll put all the books uh, that Nathan has published in the description below. They would be able to um, uh, read them and we, we do recommend that. And with that, Nathan, thank you again so much and good luck with your journey and If you are ever in Boston, let me know. Love to sit with you and and have a beer with you or something. So good luck. It would be great.
1: Thank you, Vishal. And thank you for having me.
0: Take care. Thanks